This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... The winner, it's a tie. And any little girl who's who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I am Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With David Canfield. Hi. And with Rebecca Ford. Hello. Uh, this week, we're going to look at some of the Oscar crafts categories that have our attention, not trying to make predictions there just yet, but highlight some things we're interested in. We're going to look at some of the movies that are out there to see right now, like The uh, the Killer now on Netflix and how some of them have been um, faring at the fall box office. And then we're starting to get like little hints of the last couple of movies available on the fall calendar. As always, we're waiting for the strike to end as we record this, but we don't have much to say other than we hope that they get a fair deal soon and we can get back to it. Living in uncertainty is driving us all mildly crazy. But there is an uncertainty that will sort of get resolved this week. Um, the Iron Claw, the Sean Durkin movie from A24, is going to have its premiere in Dallas this week. As we record, it hasn't happened yet. Um, the review embargo does not go up for a while, but I think we'll start seeing some social sentiments. And I think the biggest mystery of this, um, you know, I'm still rooting for Zac Efron's comeback and for Sean Durkin to finally get the uh, big platform he deserves. But I think whether or not this is an awards movie at all, it's still kind of a mystery to all of us, right? Very much so. Yeah. I mean, it it has the sort of patina of that, both because it's a respected filmmaker who's maybe working on a bigger scale than he has before. That's always an interesting Oscar narrative. Um, it has, uh, at least in, certainly in Zac Efron, a sort of teen actor who's now become, you know, getting serious, kind of like, you know, a comic actor do, going serious. It's worked for Robin Williams. It's worked for lots of other people. And it's like a, I don't think it's a rousing sports movie, but it is a sports movie. And so maybe has a broad appeal in some ways. Uh, and it's based on a true story. So I feel like that's all awardsy, but I don't really know if it's being positioned that way. Um, I can't really tell how A24 is kind of running it. Wait, but are all the muscles not in an awards 
tactic as well. Yeah, they I added best muscles as a category yeah. finally right. in time yeah. for this one. Mm-hmm. I wrote about 10 letters a year to them. <laughs> finally, they relented. Just in time, too. It was after I saw Cynthia Revo's arms in Widows. I was like, come on, we got to have a category for this. Attention must be paid. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's like one of the last standing sort of mysteries of the season. Is this an awards movie or not? And, uh, you know, we'll know in a week. I think we can update it next week. But yeah. to me on paper, it definitely seems like it. But, you know, the way they're releasing it, the way they skipped the festivals, maybe because it wasn't done, but the way the reviews are being held till right before release, there's a lot that makes us kind of wonder uh, what, what the plan is here. A few people who have who are working on the movie have told me some version of remember it's a Sean Durkett movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the first thing that I go to with that is really uncommercial, mm-hmm. which, which makes the whole rollout that we're seeing especially interesting to me because it feels like it's being positioned in a way where they're hoping it, it makes a lot of money and that it actually generates a lot of word of mouth, um, which for all the elements that Richard mentioned it absolutely should if it's good. Mm-hmm. So part of me wonders if it's just like this is a director who brings a really particular sensibility working with a company that knows how to make those kinds of directors hit auteurs in a way and with a kind of movie that – and a subject matter with a cast that can break out. And, and maybe that is the priority for them. Maybe there is – a belief that if the film really hits in that way, then awards will follow. So that's kind of how I'm seeing it right now. Yeah, I think the Sean Durkin of it all is interesting. He's a filmmaker that um, I think we all really like on this podcast. Um, yeah. He hasn't worked much. He did Martha Marcy May Marlene, you know, 12 years ago. Then he did some TV stuff in the UK, I think, and then came back with The Nest a few years ago. Um, I think that both are great movies. Um, I think a complaint would be, well, the mood is really there and the performances are good and it looks great, but nothing really happens. You know, Martha Marcy mm-hmm. has this real, you know, ends on a huge note of ambiguity. The nest is very internal, psychological. I mean, Carrie Coon does bury a dead horse, but like, you know, <laughs> that's like the biggest moment of action in that in that film. I mean, I still think it's a really great look at greed and family and stuff, but with the Iron Claw, something does happen. This is a true story. It's a terrible true story, like, you know, a, a tragic true story, as I understand it. I haven't read too much about this wrestling family, but I know it is, you know, bad things happen. So maybe that kind of Sean Durkin lending his really formidable style to a narrative that is perhaps bigger than his past narratives, um, maybe that's a winning combination. A24 has obviously made hits out of really dark stuff before. It's, you know, something that David, when you talked to Ari Aster before, is like he was counting on for Bo is Afraid. And then it turned mm-hmm. out that uh, this was the year for it. But I really wonder about a dark Christmas movie and what that might look like. Because this Christmas season is really pretty empty compared to what we've had before. And like sort of due to the strike, but also sort of not. It's really right. Aquaman kind of like out there. And then Wonka opens up a couple weeks before that. Um, there might be some bigger stuff I'm not thinking of. But I just like I wonder about like... Christmas counterprogramming in a year like this that feels kind of thin, like, is that a, a path that we just haven't seen before? Yeah, just the fact alone that they're going wide with a Sean Durkin movie <laughs> over Christmas is very notable and very unusual in a lot of ways. And and I, I, I would think that they see some kind of opportunity there um, because of all of that. I mean, Color Purple, I think, is the big, splashy relatively joyful Christmas release that I'm sure Warner Brothers is hoping brings a lot of people out, you know, regardless of the strike. But 
this movie scratches a very different itch. My main concern for it is December is just going to be really crowded with awards contenders, not saying this is one in general, because a lot of things have pushed. So December, you have, in addition to movies like All of Us Strangers, um, which were already dated for December, you have American Fiction moved to December, Poor Things moved to December, um, Maestro is hitting Netflix in December. Like, there's a lot of movies that are going to be competing for that attention, which, again, could explain why Iron Claw is trying to find its own lane um, as opposed to just being thrown in with all of these movies that are jockeying for a similar kind of audience. This also made me remember that there's that movie, The Boys in the Boat, coming out at yes, Christmas. Yes, I was just thinking about that. Which, on paper, I think we had all said, oh, this might be a contender. George Clooney's directing it. You know, it's it's a, another true story. It, again, seemed like a possible contender that also skipped all the festivals and, and all of that. But we have all heard sort of through the grapevine that it, it's not and it is, again, probably just a commercial play, um, which is the, I feel like, buzz phrase of the season this year. Yeah. So I think there's a couple of those films coming around Christmas that we have to kind of keep an eye on. I mean... I tried to, I did try to uh, lend my dad a copy of The Boys in the Boat that I got, and I haven't read it yet, but I was like, oh, this might be something you'd like first. And he was like, oh, I already read that. Don't worry about it. I was like, <laughs> ah, now I see the target audience for this Christmas release. From what I understand, even about the holdovers, and we can talk about that doing really well so far, um, the initial campaign behind that was focused really trying to sell it in a more commercial way than they sold their last big awards contender, which was Tar, and which was a pretty significant box office disappointment. Yeah. So... I think that is the buzzword of the season. I think that there is a renewed focus on these movies actually making money because where maybe, and I'm not saying these you know departments or roles were taking anything for granted because these are always harder movies to sell to audiences, but that built-in specialty audience that existed before COVID uh, for a movie at a certain critical threshold with a certain uh, you know awards pedigree would do well uh, in limited release. It would make a good amount of money almost always. Uh, if it if it hit those marks, and that doesn't happen anymore without a much more specific kind of strategy. And so the hits that we've seen this season, whether it's like releasing past lives in June out of the fray, getting it that giving it that room to find an audience, which was really successful, or you know, different kinds of limited platform rollouts for different movies. you know every every rollout's a little bit different now. Um, just speaks to the fact that there's there's a lot more consideration for how to get people to see these movies than I think there was a few years ago, just given the way the market has changed. Well, and how to get people to think about them. Like, I feel like the the shadow of the Fablemans was looming really large when Killers of the Flower Moon came out because the Fablemans had won that award at Toronto and then it kind of opens to actual audiences and really, like, underperformed. And honestly, I'd be interested in looking back and seeing like what that actually looked like. Um, and I think we talked about this, the Killers of the Flower Moon kind of like did well enough to skate by. Like it cost a ton of money. I don't think it's going to be some like huge financial success for them. But like, I think last fall was really sobering for all these movies and being like, well, like if people talk about it as a flop, like it's just gonna be dead in the water. You know, they delayed the release of Women Talking for a long time. So that it was kind of like out of that fray. And I'm I'm interested yep. in the lessons that we're seeing from that this year. And also how little it matters when you've got two massive hits that will be Oscar nominees no matter what. Yeah. I mean, Women Talking did not make a lot of money, but it was nominated for Best Picture. And there, and it didn't get hit in the way that other movies did. 
um, because of when it was released. And I think it also platformed over some crazy storm and there were a lot of, you know, defense. I, I don't know why I'm remembering that now, but, <laughs> I, you know, but even something like that and, you know, an extraneous event can help in terms of a narrative. And those narratives do matter. So what other movies do we think besides Barbie and Oppenheimer can be can be benefited from a box office narrative based on what we've seen so far? Well, I I, I feel like the other big movie in that regard is The Color Purple, which we haven't seen yet and which mm-hmm. we don't know how it's going to do. But that feels like a movie whose fate, and I'm assuming it will be decent, you know, I'm assuming it'll be solid, um, could go either way, you know, on that scale, but kind of in that area. I think its awards trajectory would be determined to some extent by how well it does, because if it's a real phenomenon um, with audiences, it could take on a life of its own as an awards contender in in the same way even Barbie did. I mean, I don't think Mm -hmm. Barbie was a movie we were really talking about as a best picture lock until it was clear how big this thing was going to be. I mean, I suppose one would have to say, what about the third biggest movie of the year? I mean, bigger than Oppenheimer, Super Mario Brothers. Yeah, <laughs> look, look. You know, in animated. I, I don't know if the movie itself is of quality enough uh, when you have it up against, you know, Miyazaki, for example. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think that the box office metric, th- this is something we were talking about all the way back for the from the Hurt Locker, you know, mm-hmm. uh, no one's seeing this best picture winner, you know, that kind of thing. I, I don't know how much it matters, except in this singular year, um, when I don't think that this season is predictable exactly. But the big, big question is just how much is Oppenheimer going to win? And maybe how much is Barbie going to win? You know, we're going to talk about technical categories later on this episode. And I think Barbie obviously stands pretty strong in those. But, you know, for me, I've sort of spent years hemming and hawing about like waning interest in movies from audiences. And I think that is true. And that contributes to box office. I mean, you know, back in the old days, Best Picture nominees, usually from studios, yes, would like actually make a good deal of money, you know, not Mm -hmm. all not all of them, not Merchant Ivory stuff, necessarily, but, you know, Zemeckis movies and whatnot. But I also think that there is maybe a finger to be pointed a little bit at studios and marketing and and a lack thereof. And I, I talk to so many people who are not too far from, you know, culture center, and they don't know when movies are out, you know, they, they mm-hmm. no one knew the holdovers without in, in theaters in New York, you know, recently. And so I, I, I don't know, I kind of I appreciate that, that a 24 going back to Ironclaw, does at least seem to be trying to do some kind of notable rollout, you know, and I would hope they're advertising on ESPN and wherever else people who like hmm. sports are tuning in, you know, and because like I think that some effort might be required beyond, you know, a trailer release and some festival reviews and that's it. One other interesting narrative, this is not a typical box office narrative for awards, um, is for Anatomy of a Fall, because that movie was a huge hit in France and I think is selling well internationally generally, like really well. I believe it was the biggest Palm opening in France in well over a decade um, when it was first released there. And if you think about the Academy and its ever-expanding global reach and makeup, I wonder what that kind of impact has on a movie like that, because it did fine in the U.S. It, it was, you know, for a specialty French movie with some awards buzz, it, it, it made some money, but not hasn't done spectacularly well. Um, but given how big of a global hit it is, mm. uh, that may have some kind of impact. It's kind of a, a fresh question 
given how fast the Academy has changed and how rarely I think you see that, at least for international awards contenders. So that's an interesting question uh, that I don't really know the answer to. Yeah, I had no idea it was such a big... It's made $12.5 million worldwide. I, I did want to shout out Priscilla, which is newly released. And um, our friend and future guest, Joe Reed, pointed out that it's the first time Sofia Coppola has ever had a film in the Weekend Top 5, ever. Uh, which might say more about context and release strategies and everything like that. But, you know, it's it made $5 million. It's doing okay up there. I'm... I think we've all been a little bit curious about how it's going to fare, given that it's got a little bit more of a mixed response than some of these other films. But maybe there's a box office path for it. It does feel like there's a lot of awareness for that film. And I don't know if that has to do with the fact that the actors could be out there, that it's an Elvis story and and all of that, or even the sort of controversy that's come out around it. But I do feel like that's a film that a lot of people sort of outside of our little realm even seem aware of um, Mm -hmm. more than I expected. When you have good hair and makeup. Sometimes it'll take you a long way. Maybe that's a category we'll get into later on. It gives me some hope, and I'm really closely watching how movies like American Fiction and Saltburn do. Those are both Amazon movies. They're both really audience-friendly movies. They've been cleaning up at audience awards, in fact, or at festivals around the country. And they're movies that should be able to break out theatrically. And obviously they are immediately um, limited by the fact that their actors can't do press. Saltburn is opening very soon. American fiction would have opened already, I believe, and is still opening relatively soon. But I, I, I wonder what movies like that, that have a real commercial bent that are also really well-made, thoughtfully made, um, what kind of crowd they can find given that we are seeing some hopeful signs with movies like Priscilla and Holdovers. I mean, I when I think of like bringing screeners to my family and like what I can recommend to members of my family who actually want to see movies, American Fiction and Holdovers feel like such slam dunks. Like those are movies that even if people wind up seeing them at home, which I think is what happens to a lot of these, like those are going to do well just because so many different people are able to see them and, and engage with them. And that has to be an advantage, I think. The Run for Revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowich. Um, who should be the mayor of New York? We all support yeah, that. We support that. Very <laughs> <laughs> <Right> nice. <laughs> Nikki. Yes. It's been really great Shield being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, well, to go back to movies that may not get seen in the theater because they're already on Netflix or will be shortly, uh, David Fincher's The Killer is going to be on Netflix as of this weekend. Uh, Nyad premiered there last weekend, so the Netflix award slate is kind of starting to go streaming. Uh, I think we've all been a little curious about where The Killer is as an awards thing. You know, Richard, when you saw it at Venice, I feel like you were not the only one who was a little bit not iffy on it, but just kind of like did not necessarily see it as part of this conversation. And I don't think that's changed for you at all since then. 
I think it's fair to say I was iffy on it. <laughs> <You know>? Okay. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think it has a couple of great sequences, one involving Tilda Swinton that well, are, Everything you know, she does, is every sequence she's in is great by default, so. Yeah. Exactly. Um, you know, and so that's that's worth checking out for those couple of moments alone. But, you know, it's interesting at Venice, I think, because some, this sometimes happens, a movie that's smaller in scale than people were expecting or hoping uh, gets a bit swallowed up by all the festival pomp and circumstance. And then when it eventually comes out a month or so later, or a couple months later, or the next year, it has a little mini reassessment from critics and, and, and people who see it, you know, right when it's out. And that seems to be happening with Killer. Um, I've seen a lot of people kind of pushing back against reviews like mine from Venice saying, you guys kind of missed the point And, you know, it's kind of the uh, the bad kind kind of festival fever in a way, you know. Um, sometimes that particular sickness can work in the negative for a film. Festival uh, which, flu. Festival flu. <laughs> sure, there you go. Um, but let's you know, let's not evoke any more modern illnesses than flu. Uh, it's not festival COVID, okay? Um, but like I and I think that that's interesting, and it makes me want to rewatch the movie uh, more, uh, just like for my own enjoyment, and not you know in a sort of critical or work capacity. Because, you know, it's a Fincher film and there, so there is, you know, there, there are ideas there, there's style there that I think make it worth a watch. But no, it's, it's not Fincher making something big and declarative like maybe he did with Zodiac or Social Network. This is a smaller kind of even smaller in some ways than Panic Room kind of movie that, um, you know, he's good at those little genre exercises as well. And that's kind of what the killer is to me, though, yes, people have post-Venice started to see, I, th- I think, some grander meaning in it. Yeah, I feel like if you go in with the right expectations, you could really enjoy that film. I I saw it and didn't really know what kind of Fincher movie I was going in for. Um, Richard and I were texting about there's a fight sequence in it that is really, really incredible. And again, probably worth watching just to check that out. And and obviously a lot of the craft is is really impressive But and performances. But um, yeah, it's it's just smaller and quieter than I had anticipated. So it might do really well on Netflix. Um, but yeah, I think it remains to be seen what we're, we're talking about for awards. Yeah, it's maybe a trite thing to say about Fincher's directorial style. But, you know, there are a lot of reports out there that in certain projects, he does a lot of takes per scene, you know, mm-hmm. uh, like sometimes in the dozens. Um, and watching that fight scene, which is so intricately choreographed and moves between rooms and it just involves a lot of like props and, and sort of like crashing through things. And um, I was like, did that take three months to film? <laughs> because like, I can't imagine having to do like so many different takes of all these different setups, you know, um, maybe maybe it was flu- filmed a lot more fluidly, easily than that. But it is very impressive as a sort of centerpiece of the movie. I think that maybe I was hoping for more of that energy sustained throughout the film. Yeah. The, and the sound design is really incredible within that scene and, and the way the choices he's made throughout the film. So I, I, I think film nerds will still find a lot of things to appreciate about it. It's fascinating to me that this and Next Goal Wins are the first movies Michael Fassbender's really been in in several years. He's been kind of out there like racing cars, I think, and doing mm-hmm. his own thing. And um, I don't think the killer is really quite misbegotten in the way that Next Goal Wins is. And, you know, maybe we'll talk more about that when it actually comes out. But it feels like both of these comebacks are going to kind of come and go. And then we'll still be really waiting to see what the next phase of his potential movie star career is going to be. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think when Next School Wins was originally supposed to come out in, what, 1997? Oh, yeah, something like that, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But, like, I think there would have been less of a gap in his career had that movie come out yeah. closer to when it was filmed, right? Yeah. But it's also such a light 
thing, you know? Yeah. It's like it's like having waited so long to see that, I think, like, kind of hurts it expectations-wise. Um, but he's, I mean, he still is a movie star in some definition of the word, as as damaged as that term is. Um, and, I, and I don't feel like the killer in Nick Skull Wins kind of being quieter is going to affect that, but I feel like I'll still be waiting. Uh, well, Richard, thinking, speaking of things that um, you have reviewed or will be soon, you and I think every other critic has been very eager to get a look at The Curse, the Showtime series that has Nathan Fielder, Benny Safdie, and Emma Stone behind it. So in our, you know, strike-addled TV schedule, it's like a blockbuster. <laughs> like, it's like the biggest thing that we've seen in forever. I guess The Crown's right around the corner. Maybe not that. Not not that dramatic, but it does seem fascinating. And like you would expect from something that Nathan Fielder and Benny Safdie had their hands in, uh, divisive. And I think there are spoilers to be had, so I think we're going to try to keep pretty light on this. But um, yeah. where did you land on that divide? Yeah, um, I absolutely, under strict embargo agreement, am not able to talk about how the season ends, so I won't. But yeah, I was very curious about it because of the people behind the camera, because of Emma Stone in front of the camera. She's also a producer on the show. Um, but also because it has an HGTV connection. And yeah. um, I, you know, I wrote a big feature for the magazine a couple years ago about my sort of obsession with home design shows and the, the phenomenon of those that, you know, extends past HGTV. But that's really the, the locus of all that. So I went in very curious. And it's not what I thought it was. I thought it was going to be much more of a... Remember that Quibi show? Um, oh, with, boy. Uh, who was it? I think it was um, Caitlin Olsen and oh. somebody else. Truly have a, no a, idea what you're talking about. <laughs> oh, okay. Sorry. Engaging. Is this one of those quibbies you dreamed, Richard? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, maybe. Anyway, I thought it was going to be more satire parody kind of thing, um, though I, of course, should have expected something different from Fielder and Safdie. Um, I am not a fan of Fielder's other shows. I find them to be, I know this just makes me kind of missing the point, but I find them to be sort of cruel in the way they involve real people. So I was more intrigued to see him do a scripted thing where he's playing a character. Um, he and Emma Stone play a husband and wife who are trying to get film a pilot in the beginning uh, for an HGTV show, basically, that is about them descending on this small town in New Mexico, a very poor town um, located close to a um, indigenous Pueblo community, and try to make these very sustainable passive homes that are, you know, very, basically have no carbon footprint. And it's about their vanity and their obtuseness um, in dealing with the local community. And it's really interesting. It's really cringy at times, like really uncomfortable to watch. Emma Stone is amazing in it. Uh, as the season goes, um, without revealing anything concrete, I think it loses a bit of its grasp on its argument. And it's a little bit of its politics. I think that people, I have not read other reviews yet, but because I haven't written mine yet, but I think that people will take issue with, you know, how meta is the show? It's about these white people descending on this town and trying to understand them, but in a very self-centered way. Is the show itself, The Curse, also doing that? Mm. Um, I don't know. Uh, I have to kind of think about that as I write about it, which is maybe why I've been putting off writing about it. But um, it's really intriguing. And there's a lot of great like filmmaking in it. And again, Emma Stone is really, t I mean, Fielder's good too, but Emma Stone really stands out um, as this troubled real estate heiress who is trying to run away from her parents' bad reputation and be open and love and light and really understanding and use all the correct terms. And in so doing is just absolutely a bulldozer and does not really actually pay attention to anyone's actual humanity and needs. And um, I think that she really calibrates that character. So she's not a full cartoonish monster, but is instead a very recognizably human shitty person, basically. 
Does that feel like a familiar figure from your HGTV viewing? Like that kind of feels like the closest it gets to a really direct parody there. Yeah, I mean, something that I one angle I pursued in writing that piece that um, we kind of had to jettison because it turned out that that was going to be a whole other article, you know, maybe that one I could still write, but um, is that I did try to talk to some local activists from these various towns across America where an HDTV star couple has set up shop and, and tried to kind of remake towns or flip houses to better a neighborhood, you know. I was really curious to see what kind of impact that has on those communities, um, you know, negative or positive. Uh, the only people who wanted to talk to me about that were emphasizing the positive. Um, other people mm. who I know have done work um, kind of advocating for, like, anti-gentrification stuff weren't really that interested in going on the record about it, which I understand. Um, you know, people in Waco, Texas, where the Gaineses are. And the, the Gaineses, Chip and Joanna Gaines, I think, are m- very much the core inspirations for this, just aged down a little bit. So it is a really um, interesting and, and troubling dynamic of how these shows function, what the difference between real life and reality TV is. And um, and this show goes into that, but then it also spins off into a lot of strange, almost kind of metaphysical or supernatural directions um, mm. that add a really interesting umami to the show. I just don't know as it goes if it's it kind of becomes clear that maybe they don't really know how to answer any of that suggestion and if they want to actually address it concretely no i don't think they do so that might leave people a little wanting as the series goes on but it is again really intriguing to watch if you know kind of excruciatingly uncomfortable i had to mute my screeners a couple times because i just could not bear to listen <laughs> to what was happening in a scene <laughs> I don't know if that's selling it exactly. That's that sounds yeah, I mean, like it's, a challenge. It, well, if you hear Emma Stone and Nathan Fielder do an HGTV comedy for Showtime, it's not probably going to be what people expect. It's an hour long. It's, I would say, maybe 60-40% drama to comedy. But there are some. there's a scene that goes from a normal human scene between husband and wife that then becomes something really calculated and grotesque and funny and then becomes a genuinely bruising marital argument. And it's just carried through in one long sustained scene um, that is like one of the most striking things I've seen on TV this year. And so um, I think moments like that make it absolutely worth a watch. If you can, you know, if if you're, if that sounds like fun to you, uh, I say go for it. Whew. Uh, what do we make of the fact that uh, we were talking last week about Jodie Foster and True Detective and then Robbie Downey Jr. has got a Park Chan Wook show coming up. Emma Stone's in the thick of the Oscar race and also has the show coming. Hmm. Like, I don't know how much of a blockbuster it's going to be if it's that physically painful to watch, but uh, it can't hurt, right? Yeah, I think I think it'll get attention. I mean, look, you know, Emma Stone made a great TV show a few years ago uh, called, was it Maniac, right? Yeah, Maniac. And I don't know if that got a ton of it, the attention it deserved exactly. But thus far, Emma Stone has picked her TV projects very judiciously, and I think smartly, even if not everything works about either series. She remains, you know, we were talking about this with Emily Blunt last week uh, in regard to um, Pain Hustlers. Like, Emma Stone really does elevate whatever she's in. And even though this is already pretty well pedigreed and elevated, like, she just makes it um, sing, you know, and... uh it's exciting to see her do that. And and also, you know, obviously, yeah, Poor Things is on its way. And I think I think she's going to be a tough figure to beat, maybe even in both Emmys and Oscars this year. Oh, man. We'll have that conversation again shortly. <laughs> yes. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, host of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. This week, with the help of Dan Adler and Olivia Nuzzi, we're going inside the media circus swirling around Donald Trump's criminal trial. People want coverage of Donald Trump. 
their sort of shades of 2015, 2016. I found it to be a, a total break from the reaction to a lot of Trump coverage in the last two years. Join me, Brian Stelter, on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Well, we were talking about Emma Stone and her place in the Oscar race, and then I wanted to get into crafts, which leads me very easily to poor things. Um, I kind of asked us all ahead of time to bring up a crafts category that has our interests for some reason in terms of who's competing in it. And um, I will take the opportunity to go first because I gave myself a segue. Um, because the minute I walked out of seeing poor things, I thought about how uh, unfair it is that it has to compete against what I have been presuming is the front runner in that category, which is Barbie. Um, and Rebecca, you had kind of brought up this idea for me first, maybe even before I saw Poor Things, that um, both of those films, along with other ones out there this year, just invent entire worlds out of whole cloth. And, and you know, in the case of uh, Poor Things, you've got like a basis in some real cities, and Barbie also has like some elements of reality in there. Um, but they're kind of both this like, miraculous examples of production design and building something and creating their own reality. And I would prefer not to have to choose between them. Um, Rebecca, do you did you come up with a favorite when you came up with this concept? I have not come up with a favorite, but I think it's it's really cool to have these movies where you you're sort of awestruck by the production design because, you know, sometimes that can go unnoticed. But we're we're talking about movies where they're building entire worlds um, and they're ne they're never quite reality, which I think is what makes them so interesting. You know, in in poor things, you go to Lisbon and and Paris and places we all know, but they're different. And to do that right is such a difficult balance. So I I feel like that one is almost undeniable. But I, Barbie is such a such an unpredictable horse in this race. I think that it makes for a really really interesting competition. I feel like it's been several years, too, since we had a production design winner that was just so thoroughly removed from reality. I mean, I guess Dune won, which is, like, pretty close in there, too, but, like, All Quiet on the Western Front won last year. And before that, it was Mank. And I think that ability to celebrate kind of, like, wild imagination that you get in this category more than maybe some others is a really special one. And maybe we'll get people to pay attention to this category who don't usually. Well, since you brought up poor things, I feel like um, I'm going to make the easy jump to costume design. Mm -hmm. While I, I back think to Barbie things... so soon. <laughs> yes, but well, I not necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Um, poor things, I think, is a very strong competitor there as well. But what I'm more interested in is sort of the battle of the Jacklins, <laughs> which is <laughs> such a nerdy thing to say. But um, so Jacqueline Duran did Barbie. You know, she has been nominated eight times. She's won this category twice um, for Anna Karenina and Little Women. And obviously, I think the costumes in Barbie are just that perfect balance that you recognize them from having Barbies or, you know, seeing those ads. But they're on these very famous actors. And, and just the way she pulled that off, I think, was really incredible. And then there's also Jacqueline West, who did Killers of the Flower Moon. Um, I had an interview with her on the podcast. And I'm just, like, shocked that she's never won. She's been nominated four times, Dune, The Revenant, um, Curious Case of Benjamin Button, um, among them. But she hasn't won. And I think what she had to do with Killers of the Flower Moon to really – be authentic with um, especially dressing the Osage people in the film was a really tough 
task. And they were very smart about bringing in artisans from the community to help out with that. And it was her first time working with Scorsese. And I think they really pulled something special off there. So I feel like for my predicting, I'll just write Jacqueline and then just not write a last name and I'll <laughs> probably be right. So, David, do you want to go next? Sure. For me, film editing is is very interesting this year for a couple of reasons. One, the, the branch very rarely nominates non-Best Picture nominees. Like in the last five years, I believe the only one is Tick, Tick, Boom, which if you think about all the films that have very showy editing, that is not probably the first one you'd pick of, of a kind of outlier nominee. So they, they tend to surprise. And, and this year, it's pretty top-heavy in terms of Best Picture contenders, but I wonder if a movie like Ferrari... Um, since they love Vroom Vroom movies in this category, like Ford v. Ferrari won and Top Gun Maverick was nominated, um, can make its way in, or even a movie like The Killer, uh, to go back to David Fincher, who always crafts his movies very exactingly. And then the second reason is the branch really embraces more than other branches, like comedy and flow here inevitably because that's a huge part of editing um like don't look up was nominated here for example and so you know where do movies like poor things and the holdovers and mm. barbie how do they stack up against movies like oppenheimer which i think is an overwhelming front runner here just given the you know the feat of putting all of that together in such a you know riveting package um or killers of the flower moon thelma was nominated for the irishman and this movie has great momentum i feel like the branch will embrace her here or an anatomy of a fall where the editing is very visible like i, I oh yeah i'm just curious how like on which side they'll land a little bit more heavy because there's a lot of really interesting and, and unique work here. Uh, and they tend to lean one way or the other. If Oppenheimer won best editing, it would be posthumous, right? Because surely no one could survive that, right? Like that's, that's <laughs> like you do a month on that and that's it. You're, you're, yeah. you're done. Five um, people. They had kept having to replace them to finish the movie. Yeah, I think, yeah, it's, it's, I think that's a question. I mean, I, I, I'm not an expert in editing, but like, I think, I guess, if you wanted to be really, like, basic and sort of, like, broad overview of it, you have an Oppenheimer that's, like, certainly most editing, and then something else, like you're describing, David, where people in the branch like, who really get the craft are like, well, here's this other movie that really seamlessly, you know, blends these different takes together. And that's definitely a jump from the nominating phase to yeah. the winner phase, because yeah. I don't think Bohemian Rhapsody would have won Best Editing if the editing branch were voting. I would like to think... That it would not have been. <laughs> Bohemian Rhapsody, the only movie I can think of that became a meme for bad editing. For like, editing. <laughs> but, I, you know, not to judge these movies, I don't think the branch made great choices that year. That category had Bohemian Rhapsody, Green Book, and Vice as three of the five nominees, which is, again, the point of them maybe leaning toward the, the lighter side of things, let's say. Um, but it can vary. I, I just, I, I do think that once it comes down to everybody voting, Oppenheimer is so immediately and intensely cut together. Like you just, yeah. even people with the most basic um, knowledge of editing, understanding of editing can understand what that movie is doing in that department. And it's such a hallmark of, of Nolan's films, you know, that mm -hmm. sort of Nicholas Rogue inspired, you know, quick cut kind of like thing. And, and um, to execute that over three hours with so many different things to juggle, like it, 
it is a feat on I mean it's you know it wouldn't just kind of like roll with a best picture win like right. it would be an earned award. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I think especially because it's far more introspective than his other movies. It requires a level of finesse in, in that department in terms of what he always does. And it doesn't lean on the typical draggy biopic flashback structure that a lot of films use. It it is more immediate, it's more visceral and I think a lot more effective. Uh Richard, you want to close us out with her crafts? Yeah, um, I was gonna. I, I I don't think it'll. I don't think it'll win anything. But I think the the cinematography and zone of interest. Um, mm-hmm. I hope that gets recognized at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's Łukasz Zal, another in the long great tradition of Polish cinematographers. He's young. He's you know a little older than me, barely. But um, I think that the argument against zone of interest would be like, well, it's mostly just like a bright garden and then these static fixed cameras in this house where you know. The people weren't even in the room, really. The, the, the filmmakers weren't, you know, like how much actual work is going into that. But there's so much thought, you know, collaboration between Zal and Jonathan Glazer that like, I, I think it, it the look of that film is one of the big things that sells the horror of it. It's, it's a kind of a study in contrast in a way. And then you get these moments at the very end of the film where darkness does descend in a, in a real way, in a, in a tangible way. And then it kind of takes on a different sort of visual vernacular, you know, and I, I just think it's it's subtler work maybe, but it's really, really strong and helps make that film as immersive and consuming as it is. Do we think that cinematography like editing is going to be so heavily leaned toward Oppenheimer? Does it feel like there's more competition in that one? Well, I mean... Yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's hard to say with these things what gets swept up. I mean, cinematography, you know, like like edit, like uh, like other prizes, like they don't always just follow suit, you know. But I think when you have a juggernaut like Poor Things, um, in all of these technical categories, it might be sort of hard to deny, you know. Um, and that might be may mean that other smaller films lose out on a chance to get their one, you know, distinguishing award. But um, I don't know. It kind of it kind of feels like it's an Oppenheimer reverse poor things to me. Although I'm seeing on Gold Derby as I just opened that now that Barbie is ranked pretty high for a lot of people. I think Rodrigo Prieto's a, a major story this season. I mean, I would think yeah. he's probably more likely to win for Killers of the Flower Moon and more likely to be nominated for that as well. Um, but once he gets to a certain phase, if he is nominated for one or both, there could definitely be an argument for him to go pretty far because he's a beloved cinematographer. He's been working with Scorsese for a long time, and he now has two of the most, you know, two of the biggest movies of the year, and they both look amazing. This is controversial because obviously there was a lot of fur over Bradley Cooper's nose, and I understand that, and I'm not endorsing it or unendorsing it. But beyond the nose, I do think the aging makeup in Maestro is pretty incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that they, the film opens on older Bernstein, and it's Bradley Cooper, recognizably, you know, prosthetic nose or not, but everything else, the skin tone, the kind of liver spots, the hair, it's all so carefully done that he really does look like what Bradley Cooper might look like in 30 years, you know? And then ditto, too, for the work that um, that they do with Carrie Mulligan. And, you know, I don't know that maybe, maybe the controversy over the prosthetics is just too much to even suggest that, but I do think that there is really careful, impressive work there. I don't, I think it's going to do well. I, I would call it the front runner to win, actually. I think okay. it, yeah. the branch will really respond to it, even if it is a talking point 
you know, the people who want to have it be a talking point. <laughs> I wonder if it's going to even remain a talking point right. once people see this movie that yeah. we've been talking about for months now. So. Because that uh, magic trick is so impactful, right? Like, mm. you, you get used to it so quickly because yeah. of how effective the makeup is. The point is also... Notable because last year we were talking about this category versus best actor, Elvis versus the whale, the front runners in both. It can match up. Tammy Faye, it also won both. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's probably a point in his favor if it does go far here. I said an interesting case for uh, Priscilla and Kaylee Spaney, who's a best actress contender. We keep debating, but Priscilla has so much makeup and visual impact in it, much like Elvis did. And um, you wonder if they could go hand in hand as well. You think about Meryl Streep thanking her longtime makeup person when she won for Iron Lady. <laughs> Every single film in between. If there, if there is one area where I hope Priscilla does find some traction, it is there. Because the movie was made on a really tight budget for what it is. Uh, and Sofia Coppola working with a mix of people that she's worked with for a long time and new collaborators. And it's such a study in a director who knows how to get what she wants, who is both a perfectionist and someone who can be a little bit spontaneous on set and improvise as need be, um, pulling everything together to do something really special and really significant uh, with not a lot of resources. That does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. Find us in the meantime at VanityFair.com on social media platforms at VF Awards Insider. And you can track me down at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws. And David. David Canfield 97. And Rebecca. Becca M. Ford. Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best description of something Joaquin Phoenix probably does in Napoleon goes to Richard Lawson. Bury a dead horse. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the review's director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.